Our Lord has quite a bit to say about the subject of prayer. You read God's Word, you see prayers modeled for us, you see people praying, you see the disciples going and asking the Lord Jesus to teach them how to pray. There is quite a lot of information in Scripture about uh, the habit, the duty, and the method and mode of prayer. But even so, it's still quite common in our day to hear people ask the question, even with all of this information, how do I pray? I don't know how to pray. I mean, what is it that I'm supposed to pray about? What do I pray for? Is it selfish for me to pray for myself? I'm not very good with words. Should I pray in the morning? Should I pray in the evening? What if I fall asleep while I'm praying? What if I get distracted while I'm praying? And I can, I can get with you there because I, there have been times when I clasp my hands together and I start praying and all of a sudden... In the middle of my prayer, I find myself in a full-on go-kart race in my own mind. And I'm, I think to myself, how did I get here? How did I get from beginning a time of prayer to being so distracted and not even realizing that I got distracted and I'm thinking about go-karts? Listen, there are a number of books, there are endless books on prayer There are some good ones and there are some bad ones. So for example, books to avoid, if you want to know more about prayer and you want to avoid, you want to know what books are good, here are just a couple of hints for books to avoid. Any book that uses a phrase like, how to unlock God's will for your life in the title. Just know this, God's will is never locked, right? How to unlock God's will by prayers. God is never locked in anything. So if you see that phrase, Something along those lines, avoid that book. Or something like uh, the secret, the secret to receiving from God in your prayer life. There is no secret. The only reason they would use secret is so that you would buy their book. There is no secret. You want to know how to pray? God's word is open, clear, ready, available for you and I to look at and to gain insight and information as to how to pray. Avoid things that tell you that your life will be prayer will be changed if you follow these set prayers that they've put out for you. I had one I was looking at uh, through some of the, the books and articles on this subject, and I saw one that, that said, uh, "Make sure you pray this every day. God, show me where you are working and use me in your story. And be prepared as you use that sentence to receive an abundant blessing from the Lord. We aren't here to perform some magical incantation. So avoid those types of things. Go to books that tell you, this is a, we're going to teach you the school of prayer. Go to J.C. Ryle, who writes a book uh, called the, A Call to Prayer. Go to John Bunyan, the Puritan, who, says that, who writes a book on prayer. Go to the Valley of Vision. But again, none of these are meant to be the be-all and end-all. They are merely guides to help you. But primarily, first of all, you go to God's Word. So you think, you you ask these questions and you're in good company, right? Is it selfish to pray for myself? How long should my prayers be? I mean, I've heard stories, and you've probably heard the stories, of great men and women throughout history who devote their whole lives to prayer. They spend endless hours in prayer, and we hold them up as examples, right? Examples for us to emulate, 
Is this what we are called to do? Because we see it in the life of Jesus. Scripture does indeed record times when Jesus went out and he prayed for prolonged periods of time. When he chose the 12, for example, Luke tells us that the prelude to his choosing the 12, the prelude to his selection of the 12 disciples from all of those people who are following us is found in chapter 6, verse 12. And it says this, In these days he, that's Jesus, went out to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when the day came, he called his, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve. All night? And at other times, we see Jesus is recorded as praying short, concise prayers that are sometimes repeated. We see this on the night of his betrayal, for example. In Matthew chapter 25, in verse 36, we read, Jesus went with them, that's the disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. In verse 39, it says, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then in verse 42, it says, Again, for a second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And in verse 44, we're told, Again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Now, both of these instances, some people will try to use them as prescriptions for prayer. You should be out praying all night, or you should be praying short little prayers. Neither of these are prescriptions, but they are descriptive of, of how Jesus prayed. And there are good times for both. There are times for short attitudes of constant prayer. There are times for prolonged seasons of prayer. And as we delve into Scripture in search of help and further information about this subject of prayer, we find ourselves exhorted by the Apostle Paul, by James, by Jesus himself, to a whole number of facets about prayer. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, we see the Apostle Paul exhorting us, exhorting the Thessalonian believers to pray without ceasing. Now, in this context, this does not necessarily mean pray all day and night in the specific, focused, hands clasped together, heads bowed, formal type of prayer. The idea here is to be constant in our prayerful attitude and our prayerful converse with the Lord as we live life in the world. As you go about, as you move about, as you were in your workplace and as you are in the store, as you were in home, wherever it is, there's this constant kind of, Lord, help me right now. Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit as I converse with this person right now. Oh, Lord, that is a beautiful sunset right now. You know, there's this this constant converse with the Lord. However, Paul also, in Romans 12, 12, urges believers to be constant in prayer. And in that context, it does mean the formal, dedicated, focused, hands clasped together, head bowed type of prayer. So we see in Scripture, the Apostle Paul does, urges us to do what Jesus did, sometimes in long, focused, constant prayer, other times in shorter, converse type prayer. But not only are we to be constant in prayer, we are called by the Apostle Paul also to devote ourselves to the practice of prayer to persevere in prayer as Paul makes clear in Colossians chapter 4 verse 2 when he says continue 
when he said, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Paul here urges us to be steadfast. He urges us to be constant in prayer. And he simply, when he does so, he's simply following the example and the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, who told his disciples much the same thing. We read this, for example, in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, when Jesus told his disciples a parable about prayer and the need to be constant in it said this, and he, Jesus, told them, that's the disciples, a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and never lose heart. And the parable goes on to speak of uh, a widow who constantly appears before the judge, pleading with that judge to grant her request. But not only is the, does the Apostle Paul plead with us and urge us to be constant and continual and unceasing in our prayer, both in uh, formal focused prayer and in converse with the Lord, but he exhorted believers also by prayer to trade in anxiety for peace. When we are anxious and when we are worried, we turn to the Lord in prayer and we trade that anxiety for peace. That's one of the, the functions of prayer is to trade anxiety for peace. We see this in the letter to the Philippians, chapter 4, when Paul wrote this, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So you see, dedication to the habit of prayer, according to the Apostle Paul, brings about this guarding from the Lord, this peace of God that guards your heart. So are you anxious this morning? I know a lot of us are. I know a lot of us feel like we're out of control. We don't, we don't have any semblance of normalcy in our lives, and so there's this anxiety and this worry that's developing and growing in so many of us. And the Apostle Paul here urges us to develop and to remain constant in our prayer lives, trading that anxiety for the peace of God that passes all understanding. And Paul also, in writing to Timothy, told him, and by extension us, that our prayers please the Lord. It's pleasing to the Lord when his children pray. Listen to what he wrote to Timothy in chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger and quarreling. But it's not just the Apostle Paul. It's not the Apostle Paul alone who speaks of the benefits of prayer, urging us to constant prayer. But James, the brother of Jesus as well, also wrote in his letter about prayer, counseling his readers to go to God in prayer whenever suffering and whenever trouble arises. He wrote this in, his, in James chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. And he proceeded to encourage the readers of his letter with this fact that when we pray, our prayers are effective. 
saying this in chapter 5, verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And then James proceeds to give us an example of the great power of a prayer arising from the lips and the heart of a righteous person. In chapter 17 and 18, he uses Elijah, the picture of Elijah, saying this, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again. And heaven gave rain and bore its fruit. So there is a power and there is an effectiveness to the prayers of righteous people. And along with Paul and along with James, our Lord Jesus Christ too, he called on his disciples. He called on his people to pray, to pray for our enemies, right? We, did, we, we looked at this a little bit ago when we, we, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, when we looked at the words of Jesus saying, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And Jesus also revealed to us that prayer is one of the tools at our disposal in the constant, ever-present fight against temptation. The constant, ever-present fight that we engage in against sin when he exhorted his disciples in Matthew 26, saying, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so when we look at all of this, what do we learn? We learn this, the benefits of prayer, they are plentiful. The effectiveness of prayer, it is real. The call to prayer, it is authoritative. And the time for prayer is always. The benefits of prayer are plentiful. The effectiveness of prayer is real. The call to prayer is authoritative. And the time for prayer is always. Now, knowing that prayer is so vital and knowing all of these advantages to prayer, what ought we then to pray for? How do we pray? For many of us, we simply don't know what to say when we're praying, nor do we feel confident in our ability to pray. Well, I want you to know something. If that's you, you're in good company. Because it was the disciples themselves, after following Jesus for quite a while, who noted his prayer life, who noted the prayer life of John the Baptist and John the Baptist's disciples and asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. We see that in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And the prayer that he modeled for them, the prayer that Jesus taught them, was the Lord's Prayer, our text for this morning. Now listen, Jesus is not putting forward some sort of set of magical words to be repeated as though we are going to unlock something from the Lord as we pray this. Jesus is here teaching the disciples how to pray, modeling the content Modeling the seriousness, modeling the comforts, modeling the petitions that one should bring to the Lord. And look at right in the very first verse, uh, right in Matthew 6, 9, the very first thing, pray then like this. He doesn't say, pray these exact words every time you pray. He says, here is something, pray in this sort of manner. 
And as we learned last week, as we, uh, we came into this uh, Lord's Prayer, we learned that uh, the prayer that Jesus sets forth, it's actually quite easy to follow. It's very well ordered, very well structured. There is an opening address to the Lord, which we looked at last week, Our Father in Heaven. And the opening statement of Our Father in Heaven is then followed by six petitions. Now this morning, the hallowed be your name is going to get its own message. I don't know if every single one of the petitions is going to get its own message. I don't think so, but this one is just so grand that we gave it its own message this morning. The first three petitions relate to the glory, the sovereignty, and the will of God. And we see them, right? Number one, hallowed be your name. Number two, your kingdom come. Number three, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then there is a second set of three petitions that relate to everything we require for physical and spiritual life. And we see that in, number one, give us this day our daily bread. Number two, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And number three, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And this morning, we're going to explore the grand petition, hallowed be your name. So the word hallow here, It's one of those older English words, right? The ones that we bring out only every every so often. I've heard it used to refer to um, a number of venerable, highly respected people, places, or institutions. You've heard it, right? These hallowed halls. I've heard people say things like that. Or, here we are on this hallowed ground. Or, that hallowed institution. The idea is that this particular thing is set apart as greater and higher and better than any, all the other things, right? This is hallowed in comparison to that. So the, the word then means to highly honor, to highly venerate, to highly respect. And in this context, it also carries the meaning of set apart as holy, set apart from everything else in its Uh, sphere. So in this context, it's the name. Hallowed be your name. So the idea is that your name, O Lord, is set apart from every other name. Your name is the name that is above all names. And so the ESV chooses to retain the word hallowed, and some other translations will update that with a more modern word choice. For example, the uh, Christian Standard Bible will say, your name be honored as holy. So in one sense, there's a number of senses that this idea of hallowed, hallowed be your name can take. In one sense, it's a warning to us who claim to follow the Lord, those who claim to be people of his name, who claim to be his representatives on earth by grace through faith in Christ, And see, the hallowing of his name can mean that we, his people, honor him and we reflect the glories of his name by never speaking lightly of him, never living in a way whereby his name is profaned or brought into disrepute in the eyes of the world. This is the very definition of the commandment, you shall not take the Lord your God's name in vain. It's dishon- we dishonor God's name when we claim to belong to Him, when we claim to be His children by grace through faith in Christ, while living contrary to His revealed word and command. When we live in such a way 
that is disobedient to him and bring disrepute and profane his name out in the world. This is a taking of the Lord's name in vain. It is the very opposite of hallowing his name. The Lord declared that obedience to his word is a hallowing of his name in, uh, very, very clearly to the Isra- Israelites in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 22, he said this to them, You shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. And you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. So you see, we hallow his name as we live in accordance with his will, as we live in obedience to his commandments, as we let our light shine, our light here meaning our obedience, our obedient God-honoring lives, as we let our light shine before men that they might see and give glory to our Father in heaven rather than bringing disrepute to the name of God by our lives. So that's one sense of hallowing. The hallowing of God's name also means that we ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. We ascribe to Him honor. We exalt His perfections. We lift high His character. We praise Him for His works in creation. We extol Him for His faultless and excellent attributes. We pray that God might be regarded as honorable and sacred and glorified in all the world. We pray that all might see and give God the glory due His name. See, one of the great goals in our prayers is that God would be honored throughout the world. We pray that God that all people might join us in the glorious experience of worshiping Him, of honoring Him, of praising Him. And in so doing, we echo the words of King David in Psalm 34 when he said, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. However, while all of these are our efforts to hallow the name of God, This petition, as we read it in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name, is just that. And this is important. It is a petition, not a declaration. It is not simply us declaring in our prayers, you are holy. That is a part of it. But it is not a simple declaration. It is not simply our living for the sake of his name. When we pray this in the prayer, it is us petitioning the Lord. It is us actively calling upon the Lord to hallow His own name. It is a prayer for God to act visibly demonstrating His own glory, His own holiness. It is a prayer to God that He actively ensures the hallowing of His own name. So what is it that this petition pleads with the Lord to hallow? As we've just said, His name. Now for many in our day, a name is simply a calling card, right? It's a physical identifier. It's something we call out to get someone's attention. Martin! And Martin would say, yes, or what, or what you want, or something like that to me in return. In our day, we don't put a ton of effort into selecting names for our children. But maybe some of you do. 
We don't put a ton of effort into selecting, uh, searching into the origins of a name. Maybe we choose the name of someone we highly respect out in the world or in history or in our family. Or maybe we buy a baby name book and we choose one of the names from its pages. Maybe we have a name that we think is really nice, and so we select that name. I was looking at some of the names that people are choosing for their children in our day. My sister, who is online with us, told me one time of a friend who named her child Absidy. And you spell Absidy, A-B-C-D-E. Not a ton of thought or meaning in that name, except for it, the fact that it's the first five words, for, for five letters of the alphabet. <clears throat> I've seen uh, it, some of the, the names in the list that are, are growing in popularity that I don't know if are being well thought out are names like Buster. I don't know what Buster tells us of somebody, uh, you know. And there's other ones like Mace. I don't know. What do you think of when you think of Mace? Like, I get away from them, right? Shh, Mace. Or that thing that you hit people with in the medieval day, Moxie, Rhythm, Jupiter, those are all the kind of names, right? I know, for example, I got stuck with the handle Gino. And it wasn't a well-thought-out thing. I remember growing up and my parents telling me, you know why we named you Gino? I, why, why? Do you want to know why? Because I was born in 1978, and the big singer in 1978 was a guy named Gino, Gino Vanelli. You want to go back? You can listen to some music from the 70s, Gino Vanelli. So it wasn't like there was any meaning behind the name. It's just, this is what we're going to name you. This is your calling card. And from that point on to this, whenever somebody says Gino, I turn and I look. That's it. That's what a name functions as in our day. In Jewish culture, however, <clears throat> and in biblical history, a name held much greater meaning than a simple calling card. A name was given to somebody as a reflection of their character. A name was given to somebody that revealed something about their identity or, and or their destiny. Here's, a couple of, here's, an, example for, here's a, an example. Jacob. When Jacob was born in Genesis, uh, you know, back in Genesis 20 to 30, when Jacob was born, he came out gripping at the heel of his brother Esau. And so he was given the name Jacob, and that name reflected both his identity and his destiny. The name means he grabs by the heel and he cheats. And so that name was given to him, and it reflected those two aspects of what he had done and what he would do. And we see the... the the grabbing of the heel in his birth, but we also see the cheating nature of Jacob in a couple of instances later on down the line when he cheats Esau out of his birthright and he gets rich off the land of Laban. However, there came a time when Jacob needed to change. And his name needed to change because the Lord had purposed a plan for him. And that change comes as an angel of the Lord met with Jacob by the, by the river and wrestled with him all night. The match went on all night, and as the sun broke through the clouds, the angel told Jacob, let me go. But Jacob said in Genesis 32, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And as a result, the angel changed Jacob's name from the one who grasps at the heel and the cheater to Israel, a name meaning he strives with God. And so it's quite common to see people's names change in Scripture to reflect their character, their identity, and their destiny. 
We see it a number of times. The name of a person reveals their nature, it reveals their person, their accomplishments, their attributes, and the like. The name of a person was synonymous with the person themselves. So when we hear, hallowed be your name, we're not simply saying the calling card by which we understand God's name, by which we get his attention. No, when we hear the word name here, we are to understand this to mean his very person, his very nature, his very character, his attributes. And the Lord, being who he is, being infinite, being eternal, being, being who he is, has no one single name that can encapsulate all of who he is. And so the Old Testament, we're just going to take a cross section here. We're going to spend the remaining time that we have just taking a cross section of, the, of a number of the names that God has revealed in the Old Testament about himself. All of them reflecting different facets and aspects of his perfections. And when we pray the petition, hallowed be your name, what we are in essence doing is asking the Lord to glorify himself in all of these perfections as we live. See, this is a grand petition, hallowed be your name. And so we have some time to explore. Now, this isn't an exhaustive list by any means. It's necessarily short and selective in the explanation of each of the names that I've chosen. <clears throat> so if you want to know more about the different names that, are, that we're going to discuss and, and what they mean... We leave it to you to go and do that in your personal study time. So the first one I want to talk about is Yahweh. Yahweh. This is the first and most common of the revealed names of the Lord in Scripture. It's the name that the Lord revealed to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses said to the Moses said to the Lord, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What? is his name what shall i say to them and god said to moses i am who i am and he said say this to the people of israel i am has sent me to you now this name is represented in your english versions with by the uh, capital l capital o capital r capital d you will see that every time you come across lord in all capital letters that is the english translation of this personal covenant name of the lord it occurs about 65 or maybe just a, in some form or another over 6500 times throughout the old testament the name reveals God to be the self-existent one, the unchanging one, the one who needs nothing or no one outside of his triune self. It is this covenant name, the name by which God reveals himself to be constant, present, always available and knowable to the people with whom he enters into a relationship. So when we pray... Hallowed be your name. We are asking the Lord to glorify this, his ever-present, unchanging, self-sufficient self. When we ask the Lord to hallow his own name, we are praying that all would see what Paul proclaimed to the men of Athens in Acts chapter 17, where we read this, the God who made the world and everything in it. 
being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Praying, hallowed be your name, is a petition to the Lord to glorify His constant, present, unchanging, yet knowable self in the world. It is a petition that the Lord would do that. But the Lord doesn't simply reveal himself as Yahweh, the self-existent one. He also reveals himself in a number of other ones, a number of other names. For example, God Almighty. As we read in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, these words. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. This name is revealed to us to re- and it reveals or shows the God who is completely powerful over all things. He is the God who accomplishes the impossible. Like promising a son to aged Abraham and his aged and barren wife Sarah. God Almighty is the one who consistently performs deeds of power and might. Deeds that only He, God Almighty, can do like parting the Red Sea, like saving sinners from his just and righteous wrath in Christ. It is this aspect that Christ refers to when he says in Matthew 19, 26, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And so when we pray, hallowed be your name, we are petitioning God Almighty to glorify himself as he continues to do the impossible, as he continues to save sinners for his good honor. It's not Yahweh alone and God Almighty alone, but another one that we see, another glorious revelation, revealed name of God is God, the Most High God. The Most High God. And we see this when we look in Scripture. It is um, uh, written in Most High is always capital M and capital H. Capital M, Most, capital High, capital H, High. We read about this one. We see this in Genesis 14, 18. When Melchizedek, the king of Salem, is referred to as priest of God Most High. And we see David referring to this name in Psalm 57, writing, I cry out to God most high. This name is used a number of times throughout the Old Testament. And this name, by using this name, God reveals himself as the one with absolute and unquestionable rights to lordship. He is the only sovereign over the universe. He is the only true and supreme Lord over all things. This name refers to the God that makes it that by whom everything occurs. Everything that happens comes about as a result of his good plan and his good purpose. God most high is in total control and no one can justly question or counsel him. This is something that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon at the time the most 
powerful kingdom on the planet realized as the Lord drove him mad. The Most High God drove him mad, drove him from among men to dwell with the beasts of the field and to eat the grass like an ox. And this, said the Lord, was for this purpose. In Daniel 4.32, the Lord said this to Nebuchadnezzar, until you know, you will remain driven out eating the grass until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And in chapter 5, verse 18, we see the Lord actually take the kingdom from the Babylonians and hand it to the Persians because only God Most High has the rights, the authority, and the power to do such things. Nebuchadnezzar eventually realized this truth that God is Most High by saying in Daniel chapter 4, verse 34 and 35, At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High. And I praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? The Apostle Paul in the New Testament carries this forward, says much the same thing in Romans chapter 11, writing, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? The implied answer to that question, no one. God is most high. And as Most High, He rules over the small things, things that we might attribute to chance, like the roll of the dice or the casting of the lot, as Proverbs tells us in chapter 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The Most High God also rules over the larger scale events, such as calamities and disasters as the Lord declares through the prophets. For example, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 45, the Lord says this, I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And this reality is also echoed by the prophet Amos, as the Lord once again declares in Amos 3 verse 6, is a trumpet blown in the city and the people are afraid. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? And the implied answer again is no. And we see the Lord rules over Satan himself, setting the boundaries and the limitations in which Satan can act. We see this in Job. Go read the first few chapters of Job. Satan could only do what the Lord permitted him to do. The Most High God rules over our very lives, rules over our very wills, rules over our very natures, rules over absolutely everything, and He is completely and totally worthy to do so. As Paul wrote it in Ephesians 1.11, He works all things together according to the counsel of His will. 
So when we pray, hallowed be your name, we are petitioning the Lord Most High to glorify and exalt himself in his complete and total and supreme and absolute rule over all things. And we pray that we would rejoice in that like David in Psalm 9 verse 2 when he says, I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. The Lord reveals himself also in Scripture as Lord and Master. Now this name is usually stated in as Lord God, but God is all capitals, capital G, capital O, capital D. Now, just as a small aside, um, it's good to pay attention to how the Lord is addressed in our English translation because every little difference is another or a different way that God has revealed himself in the Hebrew language. It's another way, a little thing that God has uh, that represents a different facet of his perfections. And we can sometimes miss those things, right? So you've got capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's one way. You've got God Almighty. You've got Most High with a capital M and a capital H. And here you've got Lord God. Lord is in uh, capital L, small O-R-D, and then capital G, capital O, capital D. This name is used over 400 times throughout the Old Testament. For example, Deuteronomy 3, verse 24, Moses prays, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? See, this name reveals God to be Lord and master over all people. God is not simply some being who is out there to whom we nod in acknowledgement while getting on with the important things of our lives. No, God, the Lord God is God over our lives. He is the one to whom we submit, the one to whom we obey. He is the one whose will we organize our lives around. This is what this name of God refers to. And when we pray, hallowed be your name, we are petitioning the Lord. We are asking the Lord to glorify himself in and by our ever-increasing obedience to him as Lord and as Master. Another way the Lord reveals himself, we've only got a few more. Well, we've got a lot more. Another way the Lord reveals himself is the Lord our banner. The Lord, our banner. This name is used once in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 17, verse 15. After the Lord had led Israel in their defeats of the Amalekites, if you recall the story, Joshua was leading the armies of Israel while Moses stood on the top of a hill with a staff, with the staff of God in his hands. This is the same staff that the Lord had turned into a snake before Pharaoh. And as Moses' hands were held up, the Israelites prevailed. And as his, as his hands went down, or as they wearied, the Amalekites prevailed. And so Aaron and Hur made their way to Moses. They made him sit down, and they held up his arms as Joshua. And Joshua, according to Exodus 17, 13, overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. And so Moses, as a result, built a memorial to the Lord and called it, The Lord is my banner. 
The banner is the standard that people rally to in battle. The banner is the focal point behind which armies line up together. The banner is what leads armies into battle. And the Lord reveals himself here as the Lord is my banner. The Lord, our banner, is the one who goes before us, the one who leads us into battle, the one who fights for us, the one behind whom all of us unify. And as we pray, hallowed be your name, we petition the Lord to glorify himself as he fights for us and brings us into unity, ensuring the ultimate victory of his people. The Lord also refers to himself in the Old Testament as our shepherd. The Lord, our shepherd, is another name of the Lord. This name is used a few times, the most well-known of which is Psalm 23, verses 1 to 2. You probably know it by heart, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. We see it again in Psalm 80. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. You who lead Joseph like a flock. We know what a shepherd does. He feeds, provides for, cares for the sheep. The shepherd protects and guides the sheep in their care. The shepherd is a companion of the sheep. And we, as God's people, all throughout Scripture are referred to as sheep. We, like sheep, are prone to wander. We, like sheep, are helpless against the wolves and the predators that seek to devour us. And as a result, we require a shepherd of great power and great commitment. And there is only one shepherd who can make us lie down in green pastures, and that is our Lord, our shepherd. And he most clearly reveals himself as our shepherd in the person of Jesus Christ, our good shepherd. Jesus, as the good shepherd, even went so far as to lay down his life for the sheep, according to John 10, verse 11, when he said, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is no hireling. Jesus is no $10 an hour security guard who runs at the first sign of trouble. No, Jesus is our good shepherd. And when we pray, hallowed be your name, we are petitioning the Lord to glorify himself as shepherd, protector, and carer for his people. The Lord is also revealed in Scripture by the name, the Lord who heals. The Lord who heals. See, as Israel set out for the promised land after their deliverance by the Lord from their enslavement to Egypt, in Egypt, he said to them in Exodus chapter 15, verse 26, I am the Lord, your healer. God is healer. He is the one who binds up and heals our wounds. He is the one who alleviates distress and alleviates our pain in accordance with his goodwill. And this is made especially clear in Christ, who is our great physician. Jesus healed the sick and healed the infirm and brought sight back to the blind. He even raised the dead. And ultimately, he heals the sickness of our souls bringing all who believe in him to salvation. So when we pray, hallowed be your name, we are petitioning the Lord, we are asking the Lord to glorify himself in the physical healing of our bodies, 
and the spiritual healing of our souls. And in the end, we we plead with him to bring us to be with him where he is, to glorify himself by bringing us, his children, to the place where all sickness, all sorrow, and all pain are eliminated. The Lord also reveals himself by the name, the Lord who is there. The Lord who is there. The Lord, through the prophet Ezekiel, promised to restore Israel, saying in chapter 39, verse 25 of the book of Ezekiel, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. And from that point, over the next eight chapters of the prophecy to Ezekiel, we are given a picture of the reestablished city of Jerusalem. And the vision ends with these words in Ezekiel 48, 35. And the name of the city from that time on shall be, The Lord is there. This name indicates or reveals an immediate and personal presence of the Lord. And the sense of it is that it is a literal ruling over his people in the city. The name is given to the Israelites at this time as assurance to them that God has not abandoned Jerusalem. He will be there. And there will be a full restoration of the city as God reveals his faithfulness to the promises he's made to Israel. Now this event is still future as we await the return of Christ and the establishment of the millennial kingdom. This faithful God who is there, who never shapes, reshapes or changes or alters the terms of his promises is the same God who is there in the person of the Holy Spirit in and with his people right now. For all who trust in Christ now, today, when we pray, hallowed be your name, we are petitioning the Lord to glorify himself as he will one day return to Jerusalem in fulfillment of his promises. And at the same time, we are petitioning the Lord to glorify himself as he lives in and with us, his children as well. We ask him, we are petitioning him to glorify himself in never leaving us nor forsaking us but always being the God who is there. And not only does the Lord reveal himself to be the God who is there, but he also reveals himself to be the Lord, our righteousness. The Lord, our righteousness. The Lord, through the prophet Jeremiah, twice declares the coming of a righteous branch. We know that righteous branch on this side of history to be our Lord Jesus Christ. And we read this in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 to 6. It says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. And in his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord here reveals that He is our righteousness. Now, this promise in context refers specifically to the people of Israel. He will, upon their repentance, reign as king over them in Jerusalem. 
And in this day, Judah will be saved to dwell securely. However, this righteous king, Jesus, our righteousness, extends this righteous rule to us as well as he gifts all who believe in him the righteousness that we require in order to be acceptable in sight of the Lord. And so as we pray, hallowed be your name, we petition the Lord, we ask the Lord, we plead with the Lord whose name is righteousness to exalt himself by making his people Israel along with all who trust in him righteous. Two more. The Lord also reveals his name to be peace. The Lord who is peace. Gideon, the mighty man of valor, as referred to in Judges chapter 6, was raised up by the Lord to deliver the Israelites from the oppression of the Midianites. And he had encountered one night an angel of the Lord. And he was overwhelmed with terror by this encounter. To the point where he cried out in Judges 6.22, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He believed he was going to die. And as a result, the Lord comforted Gideon, saying this to him in 6.23, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. And Gideon, in response, built an altar right there to the Lord, and he called it, in 624, Judges 624, the Lord is peace. See, Gideon Gideon experienced the peace of God, and, and in even fuller measure, we, the children of God in Christ, know him as peace. For all who trust in Christ, God has, in Christ, established a relationship of peace between himself and the believer. And we see this in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Our Lord is peace. Romans 5, 1 says, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, at one time, your relationship with God, at one time, my relationship with God was one of enmity. However, the God of peace took it upon himself to create peace between us, between himself and all of us who truly believe in Jesus Christ. And not only that, but to give us an unexplainable peace, a peace that passes understanding, even in the midst of the most trying times, the most trying circumstances, even in the midst of global pandemics when we have to stay home. As Jesus made clear in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And therefore the Apostle Paul wrote to the Colossians in chapter 3 verse 15 of that letter, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And so when we pray, Lord, hallowed be your name, we petition the Lord, we ask the Lord, we plead with the Lord who is peace to glorify himself in the establishment of peace in our hearts, in our souls, in our ever-increasing trust in him as he directs our eyes to him in trust as we live lives of peace in this world as a result so that everyone can look 
as there is anxiety and worry and trouble and toil and torment in the people of the world, they look to us and they see people of peace and they turn to the Lord. The Lord also, on top of revealing himself as peace, reveals himself to be the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. This is a name that God reveals almost 300 times throughout the Old Testament. This name identifies God as sovereign over every army, whether it be a spiritual army or earthly armies. Exodus 15.3 tells us that the Lord is a man of war. Depending on your translation, it could say a mighty warrior. The idea being that he fights for and he protects his children. See, Exodus 15 comes right out after Israel has been delivered from enslavement and bondage in Egypt. The Lord, the mighty warrior, the man of war, fought for them. All armies are at his disposal. This is the God who dispatches both heavenly armies and earthly armies to accomplish his will as he sees fit. He is the God who, for example, sent his angel armies to encamp around and protect the prophet Elisha. You remember that, right? As the armies of Syria surrounded the city where Elisha stayed, angry because of Elisha's constant prophetic words to the king of Israel about the battle plans and the battle strategies of the Syrian army. And as a result of giving those battle strategies to the king of Israel, he saved the king of Israel a number of times from those strategies of the Syrian armies. And so the Syrian king wanted to eliminate Elisha. He wanted to eliminate this prophet once and for all. And Elisha, sitting in the city, the Syrian army knew where he was and they surrounded the city with horses and chariots. And Elisha's servant went out from the house and he looked around the city and he saw this vast array of horses and, this, and chariots all surrounded, surrounding the city and he descended into a panic. Saying this in 2 Kings chapter 6, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha replied, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened his eyes, opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The spiritual army, the angelic army, the hosts of the Lord were encamped around Elisha to protect him. You see, God protects his children with the hosts of heaven and when he deems it appropriate with the armies of the earth as well. And so when we pray, Lord, hallowed be your name, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, we are petitioning the Lord, asking the Lord, pleading with the Lord to glorify himself by protecting his saints with hosts that are always at the ready to hear and respond to his good command. One more. The Lord also reveals himself as the Lord who sees, who sees. As Sarah dealt harshly with her maidservant Hagar out of jealousy, Hagar ran away. And the Lord found Hagar and revealed to her his compassionate oversight. He revealed to her that he saw her distress. He saw her difficulty. And that he is the God who sees all. And God made wonderful promises to Hagar. 
tenderly watched over both Hagar and the child that she had in her womb. And after revealing this tender care, after revealing these things to Hagar, Hagar said this in Genesis 16, 13, You are a God of seeing. Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. See, the oversight of God for Hagar, and by extension, all who call upon his name, is not the detached stare of some passerby, but instead the affectionate look, the affectionate watch of a loving and caring God. It is like, albeit in far greater measure, the seeing of a parent who lovingly watches over their children with protective intent. When we pray... Hallowed be your name. We petition the Lord who sees to glorify and to exalt himself in his protective, tender, loving, and kind watch over his children. So those are just 12 of the names. And as you can see, that name of the Lord is a many-faceted name. And the number of names that we referenced this morning, it's just a small sampling. There are more in both the Old and the New Testament. And so when we pray, hallowed be your name, we are asking the Lord to glorify himself in all of them. As the Lord who sanctifies us, as the everlasting God, as the jealous God, as the God who provides as the way, the truth, and the life. We are praying that the Lord would hallow His own name and glorify Himself by exercising all of those things. See, the Lord went to great lengths in Scripture to provide us with a number of names to reveal in some small way the depths of His perfections to us. And we who believe in Jesus, we who trust Jesus Christ for salvation, when we pray this petition, hallowed be your name, it is the prayer of desire. It is the prayer that more than anything, as his children, we want to see him exalted. We pray and we plead more than anything that he would act in accordance with the perfections of his name to glorify that name. And so, in closing, we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Father, we do hallow your name this morning. And we pray and we plead and we ask that you would exalt your own name in this world, that you would exalt your perfections in this world, that you would glorify yourself in this world because we know that you acting out of your own perfections is the best for this world. So we desire it, we plead for it, we beg for it. Lord, hallowed be your name. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.